and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Who me? Welcome, folks. This is usually the part where I say, what up, Tron? But Tron is not with me this time. Um, flying solo. Uh, this is a special edition of the Trap Draw. We're tying it in with our first book club selection. Our interview today is with uh, the author of said book, uh, entitled St. Andrew's So Yorn, a man by the name of George Pepper. George has worked in the golf industry uh, for many decades. Uh, latest ed- editor at Lynx Magazine, it's been around, seen the game, uh, great perspective. The book itself, uh, and George will get into detail, goes over two years he spent living in St. Andrews. Uh, the story on how that came about is really fascinating and the subplot of the book in, in many ways. So I hope you'll stick around. Uh, I talked to him about you know difference between, differences between Scottish golf and American golf. Uh, obviously, his experiences over there, particularly with the old course, and we get into some other other things as well. If you want to check out more of the book club, there is a post on our website under the reading room. And uh, if you want to join the conversation, please feel free over at the refuge. We're going to be starting a thread where you know we're going to discuss the book, and I need to be making a July selection here coming up as well. So all that being said, I'll get out of the way now. Hope you enjoy the chat with George Pepper. I think where I want to start, George, I chose this book. I hadn't read it. I had heard a lot of good things about your St. Andrews So Yorn. And I think a lot of people listening hopefully will have read the book, maybe reading along, um, trying to get a book club started. I'm sure there are people, though, who have not read it. And so I was just wondering if you could take us through how your adventure, your two years in, in St. Andrews, and even leading up to that, how that all came about. Sure. Well, it's actually kind of a fun story. It goes back to 1983. I was uh, editor of Golf Magazine at the time. And as part of the the, uh, 1983 British Open, there was kind of a boondoggle trip for a select group of riders to St. Andrews. And the reason was uh, a fellow had bought uh, the Old Course Hotel that runs along the 17th hole there, and he wanted to celebrate his purchase. And he had somehow gotten Jack Nicklaus and Seve Ballesteros to play a challenge two-man match on the old course and as i say he invited me maybe half dozen other guys uh the weekend before the open and we get over there and lo and behold it's uh, found that the lynx trust which runs the golf courses at st andrews has gotten wind of this circus and they said no that's not going to happen not on a saturday morning in july go somewhere else and they inform us of this on the eve of the event and say well we've moved it down to a nice little parkland course called lady bank which is a few miles down the road well, I was driving the car, and four of us get in and go looking for Lady Bank, and we go about eight, ten miles down the road, and there are no signs. And at, at length, there's this fellow, some of your uh, readers may recognize, uh, uh, his name is Furman Bisher, died, oh, about five years ago. He was the longtime columnist for the Atlanta Constitution, and he got a little impatient. He says, oh, we don't need to go to this silly thing anyway. Why don't we go back and see if there's a tea time at the old course? Well, 
none of us could argue with that. So I do a Yui and we drive back to St. Andrews and as luck had it, there was indeed an open tea time. And uh, incredibly, four golf riders actually paid money to play golf. So and it's, we so we we play we play the game and we are bags over our shoulders walking back into the old course hotel about five hours later, and who's there in the lobby? Jack Nicholas Sevy, the owner of the hotel, the BBC with its cameras running, and all of the other writers who had dutifully covered this match. And I'm mortified and did sort of a perp walk down the aisle down one of the corridors. But yeah, Furman has no compunctions at all. He walks right up to Nicholas shakes his hand and says, Jack, we're awfully sorry we didn't come watch you boys down at Lady Bank, but you see, we were able to get a tea time on the old force. Now, the reason I tell that story is uh, on the 18th hole that day, I sliced my tee shot into the town and I went looking for the ball and never found the ball. I found a for sale sign. And uh, incredibly, one of those old gray buildings that lined the last hole, the bottom two floors of it was for sale at a ridiculous price. I think it was 46,000 pounds. And uh, my wife wasn't with me, so I called her and told her and begged her for permission. We didn't have the full price, but we had enough for the down payment. And that began our residence in St. Andrews. Uh, we, we owned it for 30 years, sold it in 2013. And uh, basically rented it to students at St. Andrews University <clears throat> to pay, help pay the uh, mortgage. And we would occasionally go visit in the summer. And then in 2003, we went and lived there uh, full time. And that was the basis of the book, those two years. Yeah, that, uh, I, I love that story. Um, now, I, I got to ask you. I was doing a little digging, you know, online, and I came across a rumor. Is there any truth to the rumor that you took the for sale sign with you when you saw it, so nobody else could uh, could come behind you and and make an offer? I can neither deny nor confirm that rumor. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, well, let me ask you about this. One of my favorite. Uh, people to read about and I feel like got to know a little bit was a gentleman named Gordon Murray and I I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what makes him so special and maybe give an update is is he someone you keep in touch with I I almost hesitant to ask I I hope he's still doing well I I didn't know (laughs) yeah Gordon's still alive okay like a lot of us older guys battling his share of conditions but uh, he's still there still uh, my neighbor, um, I was basically uh, the, the first door as you walk up uh, the 18th, but Gordon actually faced uh, the, the 18th tee and, and, the old, and the Old Course Hotel. He was maybe about 10 years older than I and a, a real character. He uh, drove a Mercedes-Benz and yet uh, caddied. He had sold a successful uh, fish business, fish salesman uh, in Aberdeen, and his, he had the good fortune to have an aunt who owned one one of the places on the 18th hole. And when she died, he was lucky enough to get it. And um, as I say, a real character. Uh, when I first met him, he looked a little like Jack Nicholas, same sort of physical conformations, blonde hair, husky. And when I first met him, we started talking about golf. Uh, and he had played almost as many golf courses as I had. And, you know, I'm a golf writer. He's a fisher. Fisherman, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and um, I guess his usual modus operandi when he walked down the first hole with his uh, his loop for the day is he'd start chatting them up and then he'd uh, point to the house on the third floor of this building. So, by the way, I live there. And he'd, he'd 
every, new people I have known all over the world now. When I say I'm from, from St. Andrews, I used to live there. They say, oh, do you know Gordon Murray? I said, yeah, of course I know Gordon Murray. So it's, he only about three degrees of separation between him and anyone else in the world, I think. Is he still making loops around the old course, do you know? No, no, okay. no, not anymore. Uh, he barely plays it these days, but uh, yeah, he's, he's, he hasn't caddied in about 10 years. Okay, all right. I, I thought another really kind of fascinating glimpse into you know Scottish golf, but particularly uh, in and around St. Andrews, were the different club memberships. Just kind of how unique these, these golf memberships are. Um, and kind of how the the memberships take on different personalities and you know yeah. whether you think that's similar to the states or or, or totally different model over there well it, it's totally different not only to anything in the states but to anything in the uk uh number one uh there are let me see one two three four five main clubs in st andrews and each of them is um, single sex, with the exception, well, the RNA has changed, but it's basically 99% guys, and, and um, the others are, are changing as well. But for while I was there, they were single sex and quite happy to keep the other gender out. And I'm talking about three men's clubs and two women's clubs, and the women were just as adamant about keeping the men out as the men women. So there's the, the RNA, which is, I guess, top of the food chain. And then there's one called the New Club. The New Club goes back to the 19th century, so it's not all that new. And those guys were basically the successful businessmen in town. Um, a certain number of them would also at some point apply to the RNA and get in there. <clears throat> and that's located, all of these clubs are located right on the same road where our house was. Uh, there's the St. Andrews Golf Club, which was the uh, tradesmen, the, the caddies and the cabbies and if you look at uh, the list of the people who have won their various uh, trophies and medals and championships, you'll find, I think, over two dozen British Open champions. So they have a, a rich history. Uh, they are a little bit competitive, not so much with the RNA, but the the new club. And I remember sitting with one of their old boys and said, you know, they think they're a hoity-toity down there at the uh, new club, but we have a lot more millionaires than they do now. I don't know where those guys <laughs> made their millions. So, but so those are the three men's clubs, and then there is the Saint Rule Club for ladies and the Saint Regulus Club for ladies. And yeah, they are different. And in fact, I was a member of um, the Saint Andrews Golf Club and the new club at the same time as I was at the RNA, and I enjoyed the variety of company <laughs> on the golf course and in the in the uh, pub, so to speak, of all of them. Yeah. <clears throat> So switching gears a little bit, the centerpiece of your book is the the old course there at St. Andrews. Just wondering if you could talk about your relationship with the course. Was it, you know, you hear some famous stories, Bobby Jones, you know, ripped up his scorecard, walked off the course. Um, and I've heard actually from other people, it, it's a course where you don't really get an appreciation even the first couple times you play it, but if you're fortunate enough to to keep playing it, it, it you know you, you really grow to love and and, and admire the the course. I, I was just curious, is you know if you kind of talk about that relationship, was it love at first sight or was it something you grew into as well? Yeah, well, you hit it right on the nose, and I guess I I sound like a cliche uh, and echoing everybody else who's done it, but it's absolutely anyone who tells you he he fell in love with the old course at first sight is lying because he probably won't get another chance to see it. And uh, it took me a while. First of all, I was intimidated um, by the first tee, and so you're in kind of a blur there. Um, 
the second shot to the, the first hole is really one of the few frightening ones with the little stream, the burn running across. And the first three or four holes all kind of blend until you play them several times. And um, it did take me, I, I guess while I was there, I played it over 300 times. And um, as Bobby Jones uh, said, uh, the more I played it, the more I loved it. And it, it is without question my favorite golf course in the world for a couple of reasons. Number one, I won't kid you, of all of the championship golf courses in the world, on a mild day, this is the easiest. Uh, if you can avoid the bunkers, and it's not impossible to do that, it's just not hard. The greens are enormous. For people like me who are lousy iron players, you can hit 10 greens. And I kind of enjoy the challenge of a 90-foot putt. And um, you know, there are no trees. There's only one water hazard. Um, and the rough is n not usually uh, that bad. I, th I think if I could give uh, your listeners, readers, one uh, insight to the uh, challenge of the old course, it's this, that the subtle challenge is what I would call the goal line defense. As in football, the last 10 yards, let's last five yards. If you think about that with regard to the, <clears throat> the holes sitting at the old course, it's really pretty true, beginning with the first hole with that Swilkin burn that runs smack against the green. You have to either fly that green or get lucky and bounce over it. And in the case of almost every hole, it's similar. You have some sort of um, physical feature, whether it's a, a major swale or, or a ripple and sometimes a huge swale in front of the green. On the fourth of a hole, there is a uh, kind of a a tumor in front of the green the size of a buried Volkswagen <laughs> and you just have to and it is right there you have to deal with that and it'll toss you off one way or the other or, or scoot you forward or bang you back and there is often the the large bunker um, and to me that's the fun of it what what you have to every shot you face there I think it was Henry Longhurst said you have to take a moment stand back and say wait what exactly do I want to do with this? And that, to me, is the joy of the old course. Mm -hmm. So this leads really into the next thing I wanted to ask you. And you, you do mention it's, you know, when the wind is down, it's it's kind of, relatively speaking, it, it, it can play fairly easy. Um, your book culminates with the 2005 Open Championship. And, you know, of course, the, the Open Championship has returned to, to the old course in 2010 and 2015. I think what was really notable about 2015 was they had to suspend play, really only because of high winds. You know, I, I was just curious, your perspective on the old course, is it becoming antiquated to the modern professional tour game? I, I have sort of a, a nutty view on this, and I've expressed it uh, in, in print, Um basically, I think they, uh, they don't, there, there's not room to lengthen the course as it is now when they play the open at uh, St. Andrews, it's not on the old course. It's on the old course. It's on the new course. It's on the Jubilee course and it's on the Himalayas, the putting course. They have to use all this other acreage to just fit it in. Um, so it, I think I jubilee misspoke. It's the Eden course. They have to use all these adjacent uh, courses. So to make it more difficult now, to your point, they have to almost trick it up by making the green so uh, fast that in a heavy wind, they're unputtable or repositioning bunkers or whatever it may be. Now, my feeling is 
that they shouldn't abandon the old course. And if they can't make it any tougher, they can't abandon it, and guys are hitting it over 300 yards, where are we? Well, uh, we're at record low scores. So what I think they should do is embrace that and once every five years throw this defensive par out the window and not just not toughen the course, bring it back to about, I don't know, pick a number of 7,000 yards, 6,800 yards, and every five years have a, sort of this homage to the game and let them shoot 58s if they <laughs> yeah. want. I tell you what, I think it would be the most looked forward to championship uh, any five years, and uh, and and it, and we'd stop tricking up the old course. Do you, I can only imagine? Do you think some of your how, how some of your brethren in in the RNA would would react to that? <laughs> well, I can actually tell you when I I wrote this piece, uh, I was fairly friendly with the uh, then RNA chief executive Peter Dawson, and I said, "Well, did you see my piece about the old course?" And did you give it any thought? He says, "Yes, I did. It was very interesting." <laughs> And I gave it thought for about four seconds. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I must admit, George, I have never been to St. Andrews. Um, it, it obviously is is number one, you know, on my bucket list golf to do. I, for for somebody in my shoes who has has not even been to Scotland, for that matter, is St. Andrews kind of the clear cut? Like, hey, if you're going to Scotland, you need to start in St. Andrews. Yeah, without question, and shame on you for not yeah. having done it. Um, yeah, it's it, well as most people know, and everybody who's tried to uh, schedule a, a vacation, a golf vacation there, all the tour operators will ask you, "Do you need to play the old course?" Uh, because if you don't, we can schedule a perfectly good, and enjoyable tour. But almost everybody says, "Yeah," and then it becomes more difficult for everybody. But I think it's worth it not only for the old course, but just for staying in St. Andrews. Number one, St. Andrews is really um, strategically well-located. <clears throat> it's You've got the seven golf courses that are owned by the town, and within an hour, there's Carnoustie. Within a little over an hour, about an hour is Glen Eagles. Uh, you can easily do a day trip to Muirfield, to Presswick, to Aberdeen. Um, so you really, it's like almost like going on a cruise. You, you unpack once and you can get yourself into a, a nice hotel or, or a modest B&B in St. Andrews. <clears throat> and if you've got a car or a car and a driver, you can get just about just about any major golf course in Scotland. Uh, if you play it, if you play it around noon, you get up in the morning, you play it in your home for dinner or certainly after dinner. So that's the it's the convenience. And number two, it's the the delight of the old course. The new course is thought by most people in town to be the best course in town. And the Jubilee is thought by most people in town to be the hardest. And beyond that, St. Andrews is a lot more than golf. It's the home of the oldest university in Scotland, the generally regarded third best university in the UK after Oxford and Cambridge. It's a great seaside town. You know, they got the chariots of Fire Beach there. Uh, it's a history town, beautiful cobblestone streets and all of this history of the Reformation. And they've got a castle that goes back to, I think it's the 13th century. So, you know, uh, wives come to Scotland with their golf playing husbands and have just a terrific time staying three or four days in St. Andrews. Yeah. Are, are, are there a couple courses that probably wouldn't make an initial St. Andrews itinerary but you think should 
Well, the ones along the East Nook are generally um, not um, played the first time somebody goes, maybe rightly. But there's some great little seaside courses, beginning with Crail. Um, of course, um, King's Barns is well known, and it's right beside Crail. Uh, there's a fairly new hotel, the Fairmont, which has a good golf course there, too. It's modern. It's not purely links, but it's uh, enjoyable to play. And then two others called Leaven and London Links, all along, well, well within about a uh, half hour, 40 minutes maximum uh, drive uh, along the coast from St. Andrews. And I recommend those. And on the way to Carnoustie, there's one called uh, Panmure, where um, Ben Hogan famously trained for the uh, Open cha- Championship he won at Carnoustie in 1953. Okay. I, I, I want to, last question, kind of about St. Andrews specifically. Y- your book ends with a quote by uh, the author Somerset Mon- Monum. Uh, I, I, don't, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mom. Mom. Just mom. Okay, yeah. thank you. Um, and, and I love the quote, and I'll only recite part of it for, for our listeners' sake. It says, Sometimes man hits upon a place to which he mysteriously feels that he belongs. Here's the home he sought, and he will settle amid scenes that he has never seen before, among men he has never known, as though they were familiar to him from his birth. Here at last he finds rest. And I, I guess my question, George, is, you know, you had this fortuitous... Um, you know, tee shot really that that kind of started this whole uh, St. Andrews adventure for you. Do you think you would have ended up, you know, in St. Andrews regardless, or do you think it was really that you know, hey, just lucky circumstance that one day that one shot that that kind of changed the course? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never been asked that, and uh, I, I think the simple answer is no. I was really, really, really lucky, and. Uh, I, I knew that golf was great in St. Andrews, but I had no idea the things I just talked about, the other aspects of the town, and more important, the warmth and, and um, ad- addictive welcome of the place. I mean, I, God, I to me, it became, became almost like oxygen. I needed to be in St. Andrews, and I still, we, we when we sold our place, we did uh, take some of the profit and put it into a tiny little one-bedroom, so we still okay. there. We're still there. It is still uh, a home, if not our number one home. But I tell you what, it will always be my spiritual home. And I've already told my wife, when I croak, I want you to put my ashes in the smoke and burn. Well, hopefully that's, you know, hopefully that's a long time off. Um, (laughs) Are there any places in the States that come anywhere near that same feeling that, that you've been? Well, I guess only Pinehurst, uh, with the number of courses they have there and the feel for the history of the game, <clears throat> and and the the way people with a reverence for golf congregate uh, to the uh, you know Southern Pines area. That would be the only. Um, and uh, Bandon Dunes has tried to create that. What's their slogan? Golf is it's meant to be. I think that's a conscious imitation of St. Andrews, and they've done a good job of it. But it is an imitation. There's only one original. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what can American golf learn from from Scottish golf? And then conversely, you know, what, what's something that you, you think Scottish golf could could learn from American golf? Well, it, the last part of my book, I th- say what I think about is great about St. Andrews, and I, I, I said something like, um, someday I, I want to bring my grandchildren here, uh, not to show them what golf is. Uh, but to show them what golf isn't, that it, it isn't $10 million tournaments and 
three-day member guests and Hawaiian nights. It's not, you know, Cuban cigars and cashmere head covers. It's it's a place where you play the game simply and honorably without delay, without complaint. Um, and <clears throat> when on the we're on the 18th hall, you take your cap off, you shake hands, maybe just a little wiser and a little more humble than when you began. Now, can you imagine that at your basic golf course in America? <laughs> no. So right. I, I think there are lessons to be learned that probably uh, won't ever be learned um, from St. Andrews by America. Um, what, well, what does America have to learn? And uh, what does St. Andrews have to learn from America? Uh, better food. <laughs> and the turn is about all I can think of. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and I guess you, you did touch upon, uh, you know, so you ended up sell, selling, um, the flat from, from the book, but it's good to hear that, that you guys still have a place over there. I was just curious where home is now when you're not in St. Andrews and also how's, how's your golf game today? <laughs> Well, uh, we're really lucky. Uh, we split our time between um, Rhode Island, Portsmouth, Rhode Island, where I'm lucky enough to play a couple of courses, uh, Newport Country Club, which is oddly enough the site of the first U.S. Open. So it's got a little bit of history itself. Oh, yeah. Um, and and in, the, in the winter, we're in Charleston, South Carolina, which is also ironic because that's arguably the place where golf was first played in America and played a terrific course there called Yeamans Hall. Uh, my golf game is not what it used to be. I think I've gone up, my handicaps up to 9.3, but, and you know, I'm a dogged victim like the rest of us and I struggle happily. Sure. Sure. Um, did you fulfill your quest to break par? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know the story. Yeah, I shot yeah. even par. Uh, I did. I and it was one of the chapters, one of the later chapters. I played with a fellow um, who's won the uh, British Amateur five times, um, Sir Michael Benalek, and he must have inspired me uh, because I actually got round in '71 with him, and then I did it one other time, and that's that's as good as I got. Okay. Uh, next goal. Have, have you shot your age by chance? No, that is the next goal. Um, uh, and I, I, I have shot my age, but not at my age. <laughs> I love that response. I love that. Um, all right. Oh, well, just two more questions, if you don't mind, George. You've been very generous. In your opinion, is golf in a good place today? Hmm, strangely, it depends on who's looking at it. I think if you're a manufacturer or resort owner, uh, you are concerned because the numbers aren't growing. I don't know exactly what the uh, National Golf Foundation figures are now, but we've been hovering around 26, 27, 28 million golfers in America for the last 40 years, and it's not going up. <clears throat> um, I think part of the problem is that those numbers have been falsely inflated. Uh, the way they ask the question is, have you played golf at least once in the last you know, X number of weeks or months or years? Maybe it's eight times a year or something like that. If you play golf fewer than 10 times a year, I'm, I don't know whether you can call yourself an avid golfer. So it, I think if if you look at it, how many people actually have a, a USGA handicap? Do you have any idea? I can tell you. Um, gosh, I, I do not know. It's a, something, I believe, under 5 million. 
Now, if you look at that as the base of real serious golfers, and maybe double it because it, you know they're not everybody belongs to a private club, although you don't need to to have a USG handicap. Let's say there are ten million. Uh, I think you could probably find that that group is certainly steady, if not growing. And um, if you happen to be one of those people, uh, golf is not in bad shape uh, because the courses aren't crazily crowded. Uh, in a lot of parts of America, you, you can play for 50 bucks or less. And, uh, you know, I think the, the pace of play is, is bad. Um, but that's, that's always been a pet peeve of mine. Well, yeah, frankly, that's something that Americans can learn from from the Scots as well. Um, right. <laughs> I, I, last question, George. I, I, this is kind of a hopefully what will be the start of a, a little online book club. So I, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a multi part question here. But you know, what are you currently reading? It could be golf or otherwise. I'm always fascinated what folks are having their hands. And then also, if you could touch upon, do you have some, some favorite golf books specifically? And finally, you know, who, who are some of the golf writers past, present that, that really um, have inspired you and, and you look forward to, uh, to reading? Okay. So I, uh, the first question, what am I currently reading? I actually was given two books as uh, kind of review copies to read recently. Uh, one is called, uh, it's called Big Lies by Tony Jacklin, of all people. Tony Jacklin and a professional writer have written a courtroom thriller uh, about a senior tour player who is accused of cheating and taking drugs. And it's all about the uh, trial and uh, and the whole panning out of that situation. It's pretty good. Uh, not bad at all. So I'm giving him a plug. And I'll give another plug to a friend and colleague named Tom Coyne, whom you may remember and would be a good fellow for you to interview. Yes. Yeah, a course called Ireland. Well, as you may know, he's now done a course called Scotland. Yep. And it's very good. He's a terrific writer. He's actually a professor of writing in Philadelphia. And I'd recommend that to anyone. And the third thing I'm about to read is... Um, Having moved to Charleston, I become a big fan of Pat Conroy, the Prince of Tides, and that's what I'm reading now. Having read two of his others, so um, now you ask me what books? I, I, I golf books. Yeah, uh, if there are any that yeah. stand out, yeah. Well, it, I often tell people if you're learning the game, if you're just taking it up, the uh, only book I would recommend is Practical Golf by John Jacobs. Yeah, he has a, about two pages there about the laws of impact. And if you can understand that and commit it to memory, you'll make the whole learning process of golf a whole lot easier. So I, that's one. Uh, I was joking with my brother the other day about Dan Jenkins, uh, in my view, best book, The Dogged Victims of Inexorable Fate. Um, and then if you're a collector, there's some great old books, uh, Golf Courses of the British Isles by Bernard Darwin, anything by Bernard Darwin really stands out to me and you can get them for next to nothing on ebay or the internet and they, they've been they've all been reprinted i mean this guy goes back 100 years but <clears throat> he was about as good as we've produced um and writers um well i mentioned coin i think he's a terrific writer i think jaime diaz is i've told him this many times the best golf writer we have uh, right now and, and they're there are not many good reporters left because not much is reported anymore. But uh, um, I'm trying to figure out 
you know, it's it's the older guys. It's sort of like uh, golf course architects. The uh, most of the best of them uh, are are dead. <laughs> A lot of them, anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, well, listen, George. We'll we'll wrap there. I don't want to take any more of your time. Um, thank you so much for for agreeing to to talk to us and. Um, you know, you were our uh, my initial uh, book club selection. Like I said, I, I I hope you know we can kind of grow this thing and, and it really becomes a, a monthly thing where where folks can you know find new new works and oh. and and everything like that. So thanks so much for for your time. I I appreciate it, and you should know that the, the book is called Sojourn to St Andrews, but it was originally called um, Two Years in St Andrews. And I'll just tell you one last quick. Thing. Oh yeah, please, please. They, they changed the. Uh, they told me that we're going to change change the title for the paperback, and we're going to change the cover too. And I said, "Why?" Well, we think it'll reach a broader audience, sell more. I said, "Well, if you want to sell more, don't change the title, don't change the cover, change the name of the author to J.K. Rowling." <laughs> they didn't have the sense to do that. So- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, All right. Man. Well, thank you so much, George, and um, enjoy the rest of your week, and and thanks again for your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who 